Jesus Christ's name, amen. amen. All right, here in Lamentations chapter number 3, we're going to be going through verses just 1 through 21 technically this evening. And you'll, you'll see what I mean by that once we get to the end of the sermon. Uh, this is a much larger chapter. If you would have noticed, chapter number 1 is 22 verses. Chapter number 2 is also 22 verses. Then we get to chapter number 3, and it's times 3. It's 66 verses. Then we go back to Lamentations chapter number 4, and it is 22 verses again. So that's interesting. Then you get to Lamentations chapter 5, and that's 22 verses as well. Um, I've heard that there's something about the way that it goes in the alphabet and the way that it starts in the Hebrew or something along those lines. But I've never looked it up, and I can't validate it for you because I don't speak Hebrew, and I'm just happy with my King James Bible. Whatever truth there is in the Hebrew, I'm sure that I have it here as well. But that's interesting how it's 22, 22, 66, 22, 22. That's a very interesting pattern there. So here what we're going to do is I'm just going to be preaching through down to verse 21 technically. I am going to touch on some of the, uh, uh, the, the seceding verses, the verses that come after verse 21 in this chapter, just a few of them, just to kind of fit the context and, and uh, give you an application when we end this evening. But we're going to begin here, of course, in chapter 3, verse number 1. I'd like to tell you one thing before we get into it. There's a lot of continuity with this chapter that we had last week. And it's just talking about the Lord turning on His people. The Lord punishing his people. They were brought up as being the apple of his eye. Uh, specifically, there were a lot of references about it being the temple and the tabernacle and all of these different types of things that relate to God instituting them and them being the Lord's people and this being the Lord's house and him destroying it and turning on them. And now here in chapter number three, we're going to have the same theme, but now we're going to see from the writer specifically. A lot of what we read in the previous chapters, ch uh, chapter 1 and 2, was him creating an analogy. And obviously, you know, uh, uh, there is, uh, it's coming from his heart through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Ghost. So we're still seeing, you know, uh, different parts of his personality. But he had this analogy that he was creating. In chapter 3, he's just speaking directly. He's speaking straight to you just as the man that is the author and just, and just speaking about himself. This is the first time this has actually happened in the book of Lamentations thus far. So that's very important to know. So look here at chapter 3, verse number 1. And it starts off that way immediately. It says this. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Now notice that. Immediately, he just switches gears. It's no longer an analogy. It's no longer the woman. Now he says, I am the man. Now we see from the author. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Of course, affliction is like misery. It's punishment. It's pain. That's what he's referring to. And we see there the rod being mentioned. Now, the rod, of course, is a form of punishment. Obviously, you know, we are supposed to, we are commanded throughout the book of Proverbs to chasten our children. You know, spare not the rod, right? We're not supposed to spare the rod, right? And you hear people say, you'll spoil the child. No, the Bible says, he that spareth, spareth his rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him, chasteneth him at the time. So when the rod is mentioned there, what is it talking about? Chastening. It's talking about spanking, or the Bible uses the word beating. It's not how we would say beating today. Like a, a, you know, a drunken father is beating his family or his children. Beating there just means spanking. And that's what you're doing is you're just beating like you beat a rug out. You're just spanking them. Controlled and, and, and calm and cool, but you're spanking them. The man that's writing this is likening his punishment unto God spanking him or beating him. He's afflicting him, but he is likening it unto that because God is his father. I want you to go to Job chapter 21, verse number 9. Because he is of the people of God. Go to Job chapter number 21, verse number 9. And we'll see where this analogy is used again 
God chasing his children, and um, he does not chasten those that are not his children, but it specifically mentions the rod here, the rod of God. Look at Job chapter 29, verse 9. It's talking about the wicked. And it says, their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God upon them. So this is talking about the wicked, and it's saying, you know, Job is asking the question, they're talking here about why the, why the wicked prosper, and like David worded it. Why is the wicked able to grow and to do well? And, uh, you know, the, 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 their houses are safe from fear, he says here. He says the rod of God isn't, isn't upon them. God's not punishing them. Why? But we're told in Hebrews chapter number 12, it says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So why was God punishing Israel? Because he loved them. Because there was many of those that were actually saved. Obviously, they were God's people under the old covenant. But there were many that were actually saved and were trusting in God for their salvation as well. And, you know, they were there as well. So this, the whole punishment of the nation was brought down and he was punishing his people. So we can see that analogy being used in other places in the Bible. I want you to go back to verse number 2. So we can see that it's speaking of the punishment of God upon his people. Upon the nation of Israel, it says that this man, this writing, says that he has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Verse 2, he hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Now that's interesting because he, he still says that he led him. He says he led me, but he brought me into darkness and not into light. Why does it mention that he led him? Because God is the one that is still responsible for what's happening to him. That's what he's focusing on right now. He didn't get into darkness just by himself. And darkness is just, in this case, it's referencing negativity. It's referencing the affliction, the depression, the sorrow, and the pain that they're going through. And he's saying, he's the one that brought me into this. And he didn't bring me into light. He didn't bring me into blessings and positivity and good things. God brought me here. Sometimes God leads you into darkness if you're in sin. Sometimes God is punishing you instead of you know, blessing you if you're in sin. Look at verse number 3. Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. Notice how the writer is getting very personal now in Lamentations chapter number 3. So we're following this, this theme here. And this man being of Israel, being of the people of God, he emphasizes the fact that God has turned on, men, on him. Take those off now. Get those off his face now. He emphasizing the fact that God has turned on him as God's people. He says, surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. So he's continually punishing him. I don't want them back there. Honey. I already told you that. Get them up here. Now. Um, and then it says in verse 4, my flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. So notice he says, my flesh and my skin hath he made old, he hath broken my bones. So now he's going to go through what we're going to see is, he's going to go through different, uh, uh, different ways in which he's suffering. But these are not, this is very poetic. What, what you're about to read is going to be extremely poetic. It's exaggeratory language purposely to get a point across. And, you know, a lot of times people don't understand the Bible's doing that, but it's exaggerating and he's just likening it onto something that's just much worse because that's how he feels. And it's so bad. He says in verse 5, He hath built it against me and compassed me with gall and travail. So like an enemy would compass the walls of another city. He has set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. So notice it's a place of, 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 uh, of torment. It's an ominous place. That's what he's saying, like the place of the dead. He's almost dead. He's, 
he's, he's uh, uh, referencing uh, the pain and the anguish, of course. Verse 7, he hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. The hedging about is referring to like captivity. He's blocked you in. You can't get out. It's kind of like being in prison. It's like being jailed, right? That's why afterwards he says, he hath made my chain heavy. What is a chain for? Of course it means you have been in prison. You're in bondage, captivity. And that was one of the punishments that came along with this. Also, when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. So the writer says, <clears throat> he cries and he shouts. And this crying and shouting is his prayer to God. Now there you have a perfect definition of cry in the Bible. It means to shout. That is the definition of cry. It does not mean to weep. It means to shout out, to yell out. And what is his yelling or his shouting? It is him praying to God. But notice what it says. He says, he shutteth out my prayer. Go to Proverbs chapter number 1. Proverbs chapter number 1. God will do this in some cases where a nation or a person himself can get to a point where God will no longer answer that person. Saul is a perfect example of this. Saul got to a point in his life of his repeated disobedience where God would not answer him. And they were just left to their own devices. They were going to eat of the fruit of their own hands. They were going to have to suffer the consequences of their own decisions at this point. Look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse number 24. It says this, Because I have called and ye refused. This is wisdom, but of course wisdom comes out of the mouth of the Lord, we're told. So this is likened unto the Lord, or uh, a parallel with the Lord. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set it not all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. That means you didn't want any of my reproof. You didn't want to listen to my counsel. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as a desolation, as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall ye, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all of my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso, but whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. That is a perfect description of what is going on in Lamentations. In the book of Lamentations, and in, the, in that time period of when the nation of Israel, Jerusalem uh, specifically, is being destroyed. Just, just, they have just been flattened. And they're in misery. They're in poverty. You know, their destruction came as a whirlwind, calamity. All of this anguish comes upon them, and then they're crying out. And it even refers to that woman crying early at one point. But God won't answer her. She, she's seeking her comforter, the one that comforts her, but he's not answering her. Now this particular man, the author, actually writes from his own perspective, and he says the same thing is going on with him. Of course, he's writing on behalf of his people, but he's saying, hey, I yelled out because of what's going on, and God is not answering me. My prayer is shut out. He's not answering my prayer to help us and to relieve us and to save us. Why? Because of what the nation of Israel had done. They had gone too far. God warned them. God told them what was going to happen. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. 
And that's what you see there in verse 24. Because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded me. Yes, said it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. Over and over and over again, the prophets went and tried to, you know, rebuke them and repute, reprove them and correct them for their, their evil, their wickedness. You know, uh, especially with the priests and the prophets. That's something that gets brought up repeatedly in the book of Jeremiah, right before the destruction took place. Just the, the, the deceit and, you know, the, them taking gifts and taking bribes, taking advantage of the, of the widows and the weak. Over and over again. And prophets were sent and preached those exact messages that you need to turn from this. Ezekiel was sent and he preached that message. You need to turn from this. Destruction's coming. And they said about Ezekiel, doesn't he speak in parables? Isn't that, doesn't that sound pretty? But what ended up happening? They didn't want to receive the correction. They didn't regard his counsel. They said it at night. And then it came. And then what happened? Lord, please help us. No response. No response. This even goes so far as to say that I, I also will laugh. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. Notice that. So when they're in destruction and anguish and pain and misery, every word that you could use to describe this, it says that he's going to laugh and he's going to mock. He's not, he's not regretting it. God's judgment is timed out perfectly. It comes right when it should. It comes right when it needs to. And he doesn't, he's not reluctant about it. And he's not second-guessing himself afterwards. And once he draws that line, he's just, you know, at, once you cross that line and he gives the punishment out and you're due for it, you have to just, you have to eat of the fruit of your own hand. You have to receive the consequences of what you deserve and what you have done. We see that taking place here in Proverbs chapter 1. Uh, go back to the Lamentations chapter 3. We can see that that is a perfect parallel. Uh, with how the Lord responds in these types of situations. It says, also when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. That's a, I've said this before, but that's a scary place to be when you're praying God's not hearing you. When you are praying to the Lord, imagine that, and God's not hearing you. doesn't matter what you do. That's how it was for Saul. That's why Saul sought after the witch of Endor, because he was getting no answer from the Lord, because God was not going to hear him. Because God was not going to answer his prayers. That would be a scary place to be that you have no help from the Lord. Where you know that if you're praying, it's just useless. Uh, Brother Rick likes this, this little joke that, that uh, I've told before. It's not a joke. It's actually a true story. My, my aunt, you know, my family have been, you know, uh, uh, Baptist for many generations. And uh, my aunt, my, she's my great aunt. She's actually my grandmother's sister. Her name was Bernetti. And she was a character and a half. And she... Tell you to watch out for the speed lemon, and she had all these these funny words that she'd say. She's a, she's she was she was a really funny lady, but she uh they had my grandma and her sister were very close. They had the same doctor. They talk on the phone constantly. They're very close in age as well, and they go to this doctor, and this guy was a hardcore Catholic, and they talk religion. Things were way different at that time. And, you know, I've heard different stories about this guy and how and how their relationship was with this particular doctor and how they joke around and they they discuss like deep things about religion and they debate like the doctrine of justification by faith and, or, or talk about being saved by faith alone to be you know uh, in layman's terms as opposed to needing the church and works and things like that and my 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 great aunt one time they know she had already told him a few times it's not saved he needs to get saved and things like that you need to believe the gospel she was having some kind of problem 
I, some sort of health issue. And she's getting older. And she was explaining that to him. And she was sitting down there. And uh, she told him. And, and obviously they had built some, somewhat of a relationship. And he you know, had cared for her to a degree. And maybe well. I don't know how close they were. But uh, when she had shared with him this certain health condition that she was suffering with, he responded and said, I'm sorry to hear that. He was writing down something. He said, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, I'll, I'll pray for you. And he really meant it. And he was, you know... Uh, he, he cared for her, you know, I'm sure, in some way or another. And she responded with, and this ties into what we're talking about now, she responded with, well, you know, that prayer's not going to go any higher than the ceiling here. And what is she talking about in that case? She's talking about the fact that he's not saved in, in that situation. And obviously, you know, that's a little bit, it's just a funnier story, not exactly related, but it's a similar situation that if, if you're not saved, obviously, you pray to God just for, God will answer some prayers, I'm sure, for the lost, if you're Praying for God to, you know, lead you and, and, and help you to find salvation. You know, but I'm sure that, that an unsaved person can get to a point where they continually harden God. Just everyday regular prayers. God's not just seeking to answer their prayers. Any opportunity that he gets. Well, the point is this. Even a saved person, like we're discussing here, can get to the point where they pray to God where God just will not hear your prayers. So you, you should take heed to that, that even she could have got to that point is what I'm getting at. To where if she prayed, it wouldn't go any higher than that ceiling as she put it. Say, God's not going to hear your prayer. That's what it's saying. So, you know, this is biblical. This concept is biblical where God can shut out your prayer. That could be a scary place to be. Look at the next verse there. Look at verse number 9. It says, He hath enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. So hewn stone, obviously, it's saying that uh, that that there was time and work that went into this. There are strong, big stones, and they're fortified in. He enclosed him, saying he blocked him in with hewn stone. And then it says this, he hath made my paths crooked. So notice that where this, these stones are leading them, they're walking down this path is what is being developed here. They're walking down this path, but it's not a straight path. And obviously, you know, uh, the, the, the straight path, where it is the good way, right? That is always symbolizing what's good and what's right. Crooked symbolizes something that's not stable, something that's going back and forth, you know, uh, something that is wavering. Straight represents something that is disciplined, controlled, it's good. You, it's not you know, unpredictable. The life of sin and wickedness is unpredictable. But the straight path is, represents peace. And that's what this is saying. It's not the straight path. But he, when, he, when he hewn these stones and created this path for them to walk on, the paths were crooked. And that's because of the Lord. Verse 10, he was unto me as a bear lying in wait and as a lion in secret places. Now I want you to go to Jeremiah chapter number 25. So notice there it said, he was unto me as a bear lying in wait and as a lion in secret places. In this case, it's talking about uh, the fierceness of these animals and how the Lord has, has when he tore them, when he attacked them, and when he destroyed the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, it was like a bear. Now a bear, of course, is a, an animal of destruction, as is a lion. They are both fierce animals. You know, that are large animals, strong, powerful animals, but they're also, as I said, fierce. They're also very violent and strong, and they can be cruel in the way that they attack. So it said, he was unto me as a bear, lying in wait, and as a lion in secret places. So it's pointing out the fact of how they pounced on him as well. 
God's destruction, that is. I want you to look over here at Jeremiah 25, verse 37. It says, And the peaceable habitations are cut down because of the fear. Verse 38. He hath forsaken his covert. Now, what's a covert? It's where covert is a place of hiding. So it's saying, if, notice it mentioned in verse 37 at the end, the fierce anger of the Lord. And then what he did was he forsook, or he hath forsaken his covert as the lion. For their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. So fierce is mentioned two times speaking about the anger of the Lord. And also what is mentioned is how it's likened unto a lion that came out of a secret place or out of a covert, it says specifically here. Why? Because the attributes were that it came on them quickly. He came on that they broke down the, the, the walls of the city, the doors of the city in just a day. And surprise them. And then what, where there was peace, the peaceable habitations, now there is destruction and chaos and calamity. And then it also speaks about it being fierce two times. That's because these animals are fierce animals. Go to Hosea chapter number 13 also. Go to Hosea chapter number 13. Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Right before Joel should be Hosea. Hosea chapter number 13. And we're going to look at verse number 7. I want you to notice this. It says, Therefore I will be unto them as a lion. This is talking about the Lord. This is God speaking. As a leopard by the way will I observe them. Now what does that mean? It's saying he's watching them. It's stalking its prey like a leopard stalks its prey. Verse 8. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rend the call of their heart and there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. So what is, what's going on here? And there in the end when it says the wild beast shall tear them. That is a summary of all those animals you just read. A wild beast. That's what it is. These animals are fierce animals. They're powerful animals. They're strong animals. And they're animals that stalk their prey. They're hunting animals. That's what they are. They're like apex predators. At, they're at the very top of the food chain. And the way that they, they get their animal is they, they sneak up on, on their animal or their prey. They sneak up on their animal. Now, what's interesting about this is that in Lamentations chapter 3, two animals are mentioned, a lion and a bear. And it was the Lord being likened unto a lion and a bear when he destroyed Jerusalem. Here we have a little bit more detail given in Hosea 13. And it's the Lord being likened unto a lion and a bear. But there's also another animal that he's likened unto here. And it began with verse number 7. First it was the lion. Then it was a leopard. Then it was a bear. Then again the lion is mentioned. So notice, it, I repeated the, the lion twice. The Bible repeated it twice. But it's three animals there. Then it mentions a wild beast. Now it's, I find this to be very intriguing. Because this is the destruction of Jerusalem by what? A lion, a bear, and a leopard. Lamentations, I already showed you in Lamentations all of the different, the, the different parallels with Jerusalem's destruction, or let me say Babylon's destruction, which is Jerusalem in the end times. And do you know how Babylon of the end times is destroyed? And the, 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 the particular um, uh, uh, animal that is described, and how the great whore is described, and then of course the dragon is brought up as well. Because remember, all the nations come back against the great whore, and the great whore is writing... The what? The animals. The beast. And who is it? It's the Lord in this context. The beast, which is the lion, the leopard, and 
the bear. Well, what does that beast look like that we see in Revelation? A lion, a leopard, and a bear. Where does the destruction ultimately come from? Who brought the destruction upon the great war? Lion, leopard, bear is the Lord. That is where it was coming from. And right here, who do we see saying, I'm like a lion, I'm like a leopard, I'm like a bear? And how did he do it? He did it through the nations. Who specifically were the, 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 the lion, the leopard, the bear? The nations. What happens in Revelation? Who destroys Jerusalem? The nations. Lion, leopard, bear. It's very interesting. The destruction of Jerusalem that we read about in Lamentations, it's basically you being able to prophetically see what it would look like if you could peer into the destruction that's going to take place in Jerusalem in the end times. It's prophetic of that destruction. And what's interesting is that same temple, a lot of things are parallel with that temple and Solomon's temple that he built. And that's the same temple that was destroyed here when Babylon came. You know, a lot of the, the, the list that's, that, that is read off in the book of Revelation about the riches and the wealth and all the treasures that the great whore has and the great city of Babylon has, that the things that are on that list are very specific in detail. And it's not a random list. Those things are found only in one place, all collaborated together, when it's listing off the temple of Solomon. And it's in its glory, which is the same temple that's destroyed the Lamentations, which was destroyed by the nations who are a lion, a leopard, and a bear which will be destroyed by the nations, a lion, a leopard, and a bear in the book of Revelation as well. It's just very strong parallels. I wanted to show that to you. Go back to Lamentations chapter 3, please. Lamentations chapter 3. This is a little bit uh, deeper study now, but uh, we'll kind of pull out of that and just get back to going verse by verse and line by line here. Look at uh, verse number 11 now. He hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. When it says he had turned aside my ways, it's like you're like an, a, a, an animal or you can even say a person, just, just basically a, a, the prey trying to get away from the predator. And he turned aside your ways. You're running away from him. And then there he makes a statement and pulled me in pieces, like the animal's ripping them in pieces or tore them in pieces. And he says he hath made me desolate. <clears throat> now it kind of changes. He's not the animal any longer. Now he's a soldier. He had bent his bow. And set me as a mark for the arrow. So more specifically, he's an archer. Now the Lord is an archer going after this man. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. So basically he's saying, I'm the target. He bent his bow and I'm the target. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. That's his, his head. That's what he's saying. Basically enter into my my brain is basically, reins is more of like, it's, it's your thoughts, it's specifically, I believe, more of a, 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 a reference to the inner portion, the inwards of your head. Verse 14, I was a derision to all my people. That's a mockery. And their song all the day. This is almost, uh, this is very similarly brought up in Job chapter 30, verse 9. I'm not going to go to it right now. Verse 15, he says, he hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. So this is a pretty, you know, uh, strong or severe description of what has happened to him. And obviously a little bit of, I'm sure, exaggeratory language. You know, he says he hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. That's not literal, but he's describing his emotions of the depression and the bitterness and the darkness and everything of how he feels. He said in verse 16, I've also broken my teeth with gravel stones. Now, I don't know if that's literal or not either, but he's just, he's describing just everything feels like it's broken, it's falling apart.
things that's happened to him. It says, He hath covered me with ashes. Verse 17. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. Uh, peace and prosperity are accompanied with one another many times in the Bible. You can look up Psalm chapter number 122, verse number 7 later if you like. Uh, but it basically just restates those, thing, those two things. Talk about peace and a tower and prosperity and a palace, something along those lines. Um, but uh, we'll continue on verse number 18. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Saying he can no longer, basically, you know, his strength and his hope is perished in, in, in putting his hope in the Lord. Verse 19, he says, remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humble in me. So he's saying, because of all this, the, the wormwood and the gall, the way that I feel, my soul has these things in remembrance. He's saying it's, it's causing him to be humble. He says, it, his soul is humble in me, he says, in him. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. Now, you have a paragraph marker there, but I believe that this is actually the beginning of uh, uh, the continuity into the next few verses. I believe when he says this, I don't think he's saying what he had just spoken of. I believe what he's about to tell you. Because then he says it, which is a, a uh, pronoun for another word. So he says, this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not Consumed. Now, as I said earlier, we're technically stopped in verse 21, but I'm going to spill over a little bit. We're going to reread this next week. But one more time, verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Now that is a major gear change. That is a major shift from everything that he was talking about before. And it's, let me tell you this, it's meant to be. He was just, he was describing the most depressing, uh, um, you know, situation, just the most depressing state that he possibly could previous to this. And then he stops and he says, this I recall to my mind. So this is where he, he can find hope. This is what he brings back or he remembers or recalls to his mind to try to make himself feel better. Because he says, this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies. That we are not consumed. Now, what does consumed mean? You have to understand in detail what these words mean. These words mean. Consumed means to be totally you know, taken out or totally destroyed. That's what he means by consumed. Like when the, uh, the burning bush was on fire and Moses saw it, but it was not consumed. What does he mean? Saying it wasn't like eaten up. What is it? What if a bush catches on fire, what's gonna happen? It's gonna disintegrate, it's gonna be gone, it's gonna be consumed, eaten by something. If I consume something, I'm eating it, eating it, and it's gone totally, right? You know, uh, what he's saying is that we're not completely destroyed. We're not totally taken away. We are still alive. That's his point. We are still here. So he describes all of these, these terrible conditions that they're in, this horrible state, depressing state. But then he says this, this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. So he does have hope. 
It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Then he says this, because his compassions fail not. Now, verses 1 through 20, we're all talking about the punishments and the anguish of this person that came upon him directly from the Lord. That it was the Lord that was punishing him. That it was God that was doing all these things to him. God had afflicted him. God had afflicted the nation of Israel. And specifically, it was, it was the Lord that did it. That was the focus of every verse that we just read. Then we get down here and it says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. Then verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 23. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Now, none of us have ever went through any kind of sorrow and pain and, and anguish like this person has went through. And hopefully, you know, this is not just the beginning of what, no, I'm just kidding. You know, but uh, we have never went through and experienced anything like this. Not even close. We've ne you have never in your life even experienced, you know, one one-hundredth of this. Not even close. Could you describe, you know, you know, what you've went through is what we read about in this chapter. But I want you to look at the, the, the mind state or state of mind that, the, that this, you know, the author of this, if it's Jeremiah, that Jeremiah had at the end of his description of all the atrocities and the horrible things that he went through. He's still able to look at how God is merciful unto him. He's still able, even in, in the midst of the worst problems and just horrors that anyone has probably ever went through, He's still able to say, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Can you imagine walking into a group of people that are experiencing what he just said and saying, hey, we should be happy. I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because its compassions fail not. Now, that may not seem right to you. That may seem crazy to you. But it's true. Because when you really stop and think about it and you read about all the horrible things that took place here... This is God giving them what they actually deserve. This is God actually justly punishing them. And prior to this, when they were living in sin, you know what God was doing? God was just being merciful unto them. You know what God was doing? God was just showing them grace and God was just showing them mercy. And every other time that they sinned and God allowed them to, you know, as a nation, sacrifice and God received the sacrifice as far as for the nation, obviously not a person's individual salvation, but it appeased them through that work to cover for the nation. And he was willing to pass over that transgression. God was only being merciful unto them. God was only showing them grace because what they actually deserved was to be punished for their sins. And let me tell you this, you personally also deserve to be punished for your sins. You yourself deserve to, be, to take on the punishment of your iniquity that you have committed in your life. That's what you deserve. What would be right is for you to suffer the punishment and eat of the fruit of your own devices. To eat of the fruit of your own way. All the things that you've done in your life, you deserve to be punished for. All the wicked thoughts you've thought, all the wicked places you've went, all the different things you've you've done in secret that people don't, don't know about, the evil things you've said about people, whatever it may be, you deserve what would be right is for you to take your own punishment. And what the writer is now concluding with, after he goes through all these horrible things that's happening to him, he's explaining like, hey, this is what we deserve. God is rightfully punishing us and it's of his mercies that he didn't completely consume us. 
The fact that we should, you know, the fact that we are still standing here and that we're still alive and that we actually have our breath and our life in us, that was God being merciful unto us. And the writer was able to find hope in that. And we need to understand that we should feel the exact same way. That we, we didn't go through any trials and tribulations like this and hope to God we don't pray, God, that we don't have to. Pray that the Lord would lead us not in the temptation, lead us not in the evil, right? And the pain and things like that, he would protect us and put a hedge about us. But hey, even if he did, it doesn't matter how bad it was. If you lived and he helped you at all in the end and, and, and whatever, you're going to go to heaven when you die. And he still was merciful unto you. He was still gracious unto you. He still, even still, did not give you what you deserve. So while he's looking around, he stops and he has a moment of just where he resonates this thought in his mind. He recalls this thought in his mind of, hey, you know, I actually, we actually deserve this. And you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to hope in the Lord. And he says, he hopes in this, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Notice that he always has compassion. His compassions fail not. His compassions are not ever just gone. Especially for his people. Especially for God's people. His compassions fail not. And then he says this. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Notice that it says they are new every morning. We need to be thankful that God's mercy and God's compassion is new every morning. That's a big deal. You know why? Because you sin every day. Because you, you commit transgression and iniquity every single day. And you know what God does? If we were able to view our lives and all the sin that we committed and able to view what a just punishment would have been, but how God actually treated us and how God actually recompensed us, we would, what you would realize real quick is God has been merciful unto you a lot. God's compassions fail not. And you know what? Every morning you wake up, and God gives you a second chance. God gives you another chance. And then we have the statement that comes from, you know, the, the song, Great is thy faithfulness. God is always faithful. God, and you know, uh, well, this is one of the things that I mentioned in my prayer is that I'm thankful that God is faithful. I'm thankful that he's always somebody that I can go to and depend on because you're not going to find a man that will do that for you. I'm telling you right now that I'm not faithful all the time. If you, if you put your faith fully and totally in me, I can promise you that I'm going to let you down a lot. You know, and Brother Rick even more. No, I'm just kidding. You know, every, everyone, really honestly, everyone will let you down. Every man will let you down. And if you, and if you were just, let's say that you just hung your hat on some particular person. And don't think that that's ridiculous because people do that. This is real. When people get really involved in real true calls, like they really are following this man to death and they'll do whatever he tells them. But you know what? That man's not truly faithful. And he has lied to them and he will lie to them. And if that person continued to lead them, he would ultimately lead them into destruction. He would. There's only one person that's completely faithful that you can depend on every single time. And that is God. And that is the Lord. We need to be thankful that God is faithful. Sometimes it's not preached about enough. Sometimes you don't think about it enough, but that God is a rock. What does that mean? He's unchanging. The same God that you prayed to yesterday is the same God that you prayed to today. And I'm glad that he's not in a bad mood or a different mood than he was yesterday than he is today. Because you know what? One day you might come to me and I might help you out because I'm in a good mood. But maybe another day you might come to me and I'm not in a good mood and I'm going to help you out. People do that, don't they? We're human. 
situation because you would. This is how people respond. This is how people are. But you know what? God's, God's not just, just, he's not shifting sand. He's a solid rock and he's faithful every day. His mercies fail not. The same God, the same Jesus that was willing to die on the cross for me 2,000 years ago would do it again today if he had to. Think about that. Obviously, he's not going to sacrifice himself twice, but hypothetically, he's that faithful. He'd give me my salvation just as quick today as he did the day that I asked for it. That's how faithful he is. The same God that forgave me of my sins, you know, last week in the sense of, obviously, not of salvation, we should continually ask to be cleansed of this flesh constantly and to renew our relationship with God. Last week when I prayed to him, it's the same God this week that will help me and guide me and forgive me of my sins this week. His compassions fail not. When it says fail not, it's saying they're never empty. Specifically, that's what that means. When the Bible talks about like the vessel didn't fail with the woman uh, of, of uh, Zarephath. Saying that it never ran out. That's what that means when it says it did, it, you know, his compassions fail not. He'll give you compassion today, and then he's going to have compassion on you tomorrow. And then when you wake up, guess what? It's new again. And there's more compassion there again, and there's more mercy, and there's more faithfulness there again. You don't come back to the well and it's gone out of water. That's not going to happen. He's going to continue to be faithful. He's going to continue to be full of mercy and full of compassion. And he's going to continue to be full of faithfulness. He's not going to stop being faithful. I'm thankful that, that I don't have to worry about maybe I'm going to lose my salvation. Maybe the Lord's just going to turn on me. You laugh and, or you maybe think that sounds ridiculous, but there are a lot of religions out there that, that their God just changes his mind about stuff. I'm glad that my God is, is a rock and he is faithful. I'm glad that he is somebody I can depend on, and I can depend on him just as much today as I can tomorrow. When I'm 80 years old, it's going to be the same God. Amen. And he's going to be just as faithful, and I can depend on him just as much, and I don't have to be worried that anything's going to change. He's just as faithful today. And you know, the, the author here looked around, he saw all the chaos and all the trouble, and you know what he remembered? God hasn't changed. He's just as faithful. He's just as faithful as he was before. Nothing changed with him. We sinned and he punished us, but he's the same. And the same God that would have given us mercy in the past, if I go to him, I'm going to receive mercy from him. He's unchanging. Great is thy faithfulness. Why does it say great? Because I want you to understand the wordings and everything. Large. There's a lot of it. It doesn't fail like it's compassion. It's not going to run out. It's continual. He says, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. It's like if, it would be just like if you, if you had a vessel that you had something in. It'd be like, you know, uh, it'd be like my coffee when I have my coffee. And let's say at the end of the day one day I'm getting my coffee ready for the next morning, right? And I get the coffee in there and it's all gone. But then I woke up the next morning, I went back, and there's more coffee in there. That's why it says it's, they're new every morning. It's saying there's more every morning. That's what it means. It doesn't run out. It's continually there. He says this in the midst of all of this and the trials and everything. The Lord is my portion. He's saying that's my portion. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm depending on. That's what he means. That's my portion. Saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. 
It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. So that's where he concludes that thought there. And he says, you know, it is good that a man should both hope, should have hope. He's talking about faith. And quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Here he's talking about physical. We can apply this in many ways. We can look around in the areas of life where we need physical salvation. We need help in our lives. We need God to save us or help us or, you know, uh, fix something for us. You know what? You just put it, you, you do everything that you can do. And you put your faith in Him and you just wait for Him to help you. You do the things that He's commanded you to do in the, in the, on this world. And then you just wait. And, put, and then, you know what you do? He's your portion. Hope in Him. And you sit back and you just wait for Him to do it. And then we have the same thing for uh, salvation of our souls. We don't do all that we can do. Christ did all that. All we do is we just put our faith in Him. And then we just quietly wait. We put our hope in Him. And then we just quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. He's going to come back after the tribulation. But you know what? I'm still waiting for Him to come back. And I'm still looking forward to it. He doesn't have to be coming back tomorrow for me to be looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to Jesus coming back. I can't wait till Jesus comes back. Amen. I mean, that's going to be amazing. That's going to be great. I hope that, you know, I hope that, you know, the, the, the first horse is going to be let loose maybe in the next couple of months. No, I'm just kidding. But I hope that, I hope that Christ comes back in my lifetime. I hope that he comes soon. Like John said at the end of the book of Revelation, you know, he says, He that saith he thinks, surely I come quickly. And then you know what John says? Even though you're saying you're coming fast, he says, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. He said, even though you're saying that you're going to be coming soon, come. That's why he says, even so. He's, he wants to repeat it. John just wanted Jesus to come back. Amen. He didn't come back in his lifetime, and Jesus said, hey, I'm coming quickly. It's going to be fast. I'm coming. It's not going to be as long as you think. And John said, you know what? Even so. Even though he said he's coming, come. That's what John's saying. You know, the... the the Bible, if the Bible's super clear, the, the uh, rapture takes place after the tribulation. But you know what? We should be waiting for him to come back. We should be looking forward to it. We should be wanting him to come back. Don't fall in love with this world. This world is not your home. You're just passing through. You need to, you need to, you know, uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. You need to set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. You need to lay up treasures in heaven. Not on the earth. You need to be desiring and looking for heavenly things. I can't wait until Jesus comes back. And, if, and, and this may, you may not feel this way, and, but I'm telling you right now that if I can press a button and bring him back, I bring him back now. I'm waiting for the Lord. I can't wait until he comes back. That's the attitude that we should have. You know what you should be doing? You should be waiting for salvation. Salvation of our bodies when it comes back, or uh, you know, uh, when when Jesus comes back and we receive the salvation of our bodies, of our flesh, as in the book of Romans it refers to the rapture. Our salvation is nearer than when we believed. That's the salvation of our flesh when God comes back, the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. We should be looking forward to that. So even in the midst of trials and troubles, even if you are being punished for sin and it's a and it's a a severe punishment. Great is his faithfulness. He's still just as faithful. Even though he's punishing you, he's just as faithful. You waver, not him. You sinned against him. You were the one that was unfaithful. He's being faithful. He's being faithful to, and think about this. You know what he's being faithful to, to is Deuteronomy chapter 28. He said, this is what I'll bring upon you. Think about that. God said, this is what I'm going to do if you do this. And you know what? He did it. 
That just shows you, hey, I can put my faith in you even more. I'm not going to lose my faith because you punished me. That's actually what you said. So what you're proving to me is you're faithful. Raise thy faithfulness. So you know what? We can put our faith in the Lord and we can know that what he says is going to come to pass will come to pass, even in the midst of a trial, even in the midst of a tribulation. We need to be waiting for the salvation of the Lord in all areas of our life. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you.